Mental performance isn't really all that separate from mental health. Like, the same way physical performance and physical health are tied together. And so when I'm looking at that with climbers, I'm looking at, okay, how are we not just healing, but also performing through our relationships? Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin, and welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show's expert analysis episode on mental game, as we look back at season two with an expert coach to examine where pros like Jonathan Segrist, Melina Costanza, Mary Eden, Allison Vest, Peter Croft, and others struggle in their mental game, what they learned, what common threads we can identify, and how that info can help you and me to level up our own mental game. This entire season has been hurtling towards this very moment, and I'm telling y'all, you are in for an awesome ride as Lore Sabarin brings the goods as they tackle my favorite chapter of this format, Mental Game. Lore has worked in the climbing industry as a guide, a route setter, and a coach, and they now work as the training leader for the Warrior's Way, which I imagine many of y'all are familiar with. Lore is a hell of a climber, y'all, perhaps best known for their tradescents on steep splitters and stunning desert towers. Their impressive gear ascents include 14A East Coast Fist Bump, the 13 Plus 5 Pitch Cousin of Death, and the classic 513 Mechanical Bull, just to name a few. And they climb hard on sport, too, taking all sorts of routes at my home crag of the Red, including the stunning and super hard 13D Swing Line. Outside of climbing, Lore works as a trauma therapist and is completing research that explores ways to approach adventure sports therapeutically for populations that have experienced systemic injustice. And I just cannot think of a better person to explore the mental game with than Lore. They are a bright light, and this episode won't just help you to be a better climber. I'm telling you, it is going to help you be a better human if you are open to it. I know that I have benefited greatly from this conversation. Well, this is the final episode of season two, y'all. What a good one it's been. Thank you so much for listening. I've got some rad off-season stuff already planned, and I'm going to share more about that after my chat here with Lore. But let me take a quick minute to thank our two season-long sponsors of The Struggle, Fizzy Vantage and Petzl. Y'all, this show takes a ton of work, and it just wouldn't be possible without their generous support, as well as that of our amazing patrons. Thank you, patrons. First off, Fizzy Vantage, the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle. Here is a company, you guys, that was created by climbers for climbers and which so genuinely cares about the climbing community. If y'all are looking to level up your nutrition and performance game, look no further. I mean, just check out their list of athletes who use Fizzy Vantage daily to support their training and performance. Talking about Alex Magos, Natalia Grossman, Matt Fultz, Jonathan Segrist, Paige Claussen, Drew Ruana, Jordan Cannon, Daniel Woods, Brittany Gorris, Amity Warm, Katie Lambert. You guys, the list goes on and on to more than 50 of the biggest names in the sport. And way, way down at the bottom of that list. Actually, not even on that list. On a totally different page is yours truly. I have been a paying customer of Fizzy Vantage for years now, before there even was a struggle climbing show. And I'm telling you guys, it's the best of the best. Whether you're looking to train harder, recover faster, or perform better, Fizzy Vantage has got you. Just hit that link in the show notes or use code STRUGGLE15 to save 15% off any full-price nutrition order. Thank you, Fizzy Vantage, for supporting the struggle as well as the climbing community. Y'all are awesome. 
And a huge thanks and big love for Petzl, the official gear sponsor for all of season two here at The Struggle. If you guys have been listening along this season, you've heard about my struggles and breakthroughs in my climbing, from taking whip after whip on my Petzl gin draws, to protecting my noggin with their Sirocco helmet, to tying into my ultralight and ultra comfy Harundos harness. Petzl has kept me safe and confident all year long and for the previous 10 years as well. Y'all, I've been using Petzl gear for myself as well as for my kids for a long, long time now because they are without contest, one of the most reliable names in climbing. They're out there year-round at climbing festivals doing the good work of supporting us all in our pursuits of joy as we climb indoors and out. They're the real deal, and it's just so easy to support them right back. Check out all their rad gear at your local gear shop or pop by Petzl.com to access the inaccessible. Petzl, thank you all so much for your sponsorship. And lastly, I just wouldn't be able to do this without the direct and generous support of the Struggle Patron community. Thank you all so, so much. To see this group grow so much over the past year has warmed my heart, and that has been a really big help because my podcast slash utility closet here uh, does not have heat, as a lot of you know, and it's still pretty cold in the springtime here. So if you'd like to join the Struggle family and help keep me warm and, of course, score all sorts of cool perks, swing on over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show to check it out. And now the adventure sports therapy session that we all needed today. Let's get our mental game dialed with Lore Sabarin. All right, we are rolling and Oh man, Laura, I'm I'm really excited to be diving into this with you here today. The, the mental game chapter is my favorite chapter of every episode. And so this this recap here, this capstone of season two with you looking back, I'm just I'm like beyond hyped. It's such rich territory. But you know, before we we dive in and, and do look back at these amazing athletes and their struggles and breakthroughs in the mental game, I'm curious what has drawn you kind of specifically to this aspect of climbing? I think it comes from two directions. Like part of it is really just a personal passion for that side of the sport. And I think early on, I was kind of like I viewed myself and and other people honestly gave me the feedback that I was really limited by my mental game. Um, I dealt with a lot of fear, like from day one in climbing, you know, everything from like, I was the kid and I wasn't really that young. I was 14 when I started. So this isn't like me as a five-year-old getting stuck at the top of the wall. It was like, I was like totally unwilling to go to the top. My like first, this was probably my first and second time climbing, like finally made it to the top and then just like full panic attack, like wouldn't let go. Like the manager of the gym had to come around to the top of the wall and talk me off and like help me get down. Um, and that was something like that image of myself was something that really stuck with me in climbing. When I started lead climbing, I was like from day one, everyone was just like, and Laura's going to be terrified. Like, this is going to be so hard for you. And I think it was interesting. So many years later, one of my friends was talking about physical injuries and was like, oh, I've never hurt my left shoulder. So it's actually not that strong because I've never had to focus on it. And that's something that really, like, in that moment, something clicked for me with mental game of, like, oh, because when I was so young, I was, like, it was always framed to me as this thing that I was going to have to work on. There was something from day one that I started to work on. And, like, every day that I went into the gym, 
it was something I was looking for techniques and processes and ways to navigate it. And so actually, in a lot of ways, it became the strongest aspect of my climbing, just because I was always looking for ways to navigate it. And so I think when I started coaching, I was coaching the physical side of climbing and teaching a lot of private lessons at the gym and just realizing how much of everyone's process was limited by mental games. So I wanted to learn not just how to apply those things to my own climbing, but also how to share them. Well, I really like hearing that you struggled with that fear a lot. I mean, I don't like that you personally had to struggle with fear, but I, I, I like the relatability of that. Uh, maybe because I, I also shared it. I started climbing trad out west, very submaximal. And when I moved to the Red River Gorge, it was it was very hard for me to push myself to the point of falling and and to get accustomed to that style of climbing. It's something that I really had to work on and still, you know, there's still a lot of days where I'll go out there and just be more gripped than others, of course. But for you as somebody who coaches in the mental game, and of course the mental game involves much more than just a fear of falling, for example, but it's a, it's a theme, right, that, that we hear about and I'm sure we'll touch on today. For you to have experienced that firsthand, I'm sure is quite valuable as you now work with clients on it. And I'm curious now, obviously you've worked on that quite a bit and you're a hell of a climber, like just crushing routes out there and, you know, can be quite terrifying trad routes, for example. So clearly you've made fantastic uh, progress in that aspect of your mental game, but are, are there other areas that you struggle with or, or where do you struggle in mindset now today? Yeah. I mean, I think what you were just saying, like how there's still days when you struggle with fear, like that's so real, right? As a climber, like I'm a human with a nervous system. So like any given day, like I can have really intense fear reactions. And sometimes it's for like a really great reason. And sometimes it's just my body like needing a lot of attention that day. And so that piece, like, I don't know if I would even call that a struggle at this point. Like I just normalize it and try to like enjoy those days. I think maybe like one thing that comes up for me is knowing where my vo motivation is coming from. There's definitely, I can like on any given day be climbing from a place of like, really wanting to achieve something because I'm kind of coming from like a negative self-worth kind of place of like I want to if I achieve this like it's going to give me the feeling of being enough right or this feeling that I belong here like I can earn my place in the community and I try not mm -hmm. to offer, say that with like you know it's a way to look for safety right it's like me wanting to belong but it still is nasty like because when you clip the chains that way like you're just like oh phew I like just made it through and then there's other days when I'm climbing from a place of already being enough and just being like, oh, my God, I so like just as a human navigating this world, that's hard enough. Like I deserve to go do something that I love and just like immerse myself in it and just like soak in all the joy and love of moving my body on rocks in like goofy ways. And those days when I climb, like I just feel so filled up by it and so I think that over the past several years, it's just been really learning to be aware of which which version of me is showing up that day. And like when it's that part that like really wants to achieve, like learning how to actually slow down and pause and be like, ooh, how how can we like get back to baseline here so that we're not climbing from a place of not enough? 
And then on those days when I'm like really in that joy, like leaning into it and maybe even like being willing to put aside or figure out how to renegotiate other obligations to like really give myself the permission to do the thing I love. Um, so I think that's been a big, maybe a struggle, but also like a really exciting learning edge for me has been to like be aware of that and know how to respond in both situations. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I mean, I love this as our springboard to dive into this conversation because we're talking about self-worth, fun, ego, uh, putting ourselves out of our comfort zone, fear. These are the things that set our sport apart. These are the things that set climbing apart from so many other sports and pastimes and hobbies and things out there is how rich of a mental game this can be on top of, of course, an incredible amount of physical uh, activity and physical challenge that comes with it. So let's start to shift our sights towards season two and these 10 incredible elite athletes that ran the gamut from 20s to 60s and big wall climbers to boulderers and everything in between. So first, let's look back kind of as a whole. And I'm curious if you saw any patterns, if you saw any themes through the lens of mental game that that carried across this season. You know, one of the things that stood out to me in kind of across the board was this question that I think a lot of athletes have, but I think that at a high level, it become can become a really um, like a question that's kind of can be all consuming is like, how attached am I allowed to be to my goals? Um, and I, mm. I noticed that a lot of the athletes were, had all kinds of different approaches with dealing with this kind of end result motivation. You know, there was something that got brought up a lot in comp climbing. Like, I think Molina was talking about like, oh, I'm not allowed to care about the outcome because, because it's overwhelming to me, right? Like it's become something that's all I can focus on. And I noticed like Jonathan go talking about both and motivation, like, and that kind of speaks to that idea of the way that we clip the chains matters, you know, and even Peter was talking about like this idea of we can sometimes clip the chains and if we didn't do it in a way that felt fulfilling or like, you know, in his case, it wasn't even clipping chains, it was soloing. But like, if we feel like we just pulled it off, it almost doesn't feel right. Like it doesn't feel like we really did it. And that can be the actual climbing, but it can actually be like, ooh, if we like, if we let go of our values or the things that we care about along the way, like it wasn't really worth it. And so I think that I noticed a lot of people really struggling with this idea of how do we hold on to our inspiring goals and how do we allow ourselves to care about them so, so much that like when we don't achieve them, like we could just break down and cry. Like we just like care so much, but then how do we also address the fact that caring that much can distract our attention in a way that keeps us from achieving the goal. So how do we find that both and motivation? Yeah, how, how interesting and maybe even uniquely um, potent for professional climbers where you have a lot riding on an outcome, whether you're at a comp at a super high level um, or you don't want to disappoint your sponsors like Matt Fultz, I think, mentioned, you know, at, at a time, um, you know, the maybe there's a, a unique amount of pressure there, but I do think it, it can elevate her down to weekend warriors like myself, where you might 
have an entire season of training riding on a, a five-day trip. And, you know, some of that pressure and some of those goals can feel almost like your career's riding on it because it's your whole year and there's some self-worth and some ego and things that are that are wrapped up in that. Let, let's hear from Jonathan Segrist real quick because you, you brought him up um, and hear how he kind of has framed some of that. In working with Steve Bechtel, he's really helped me to kind of prioritize big goals and let all the other ones fall to the wayside if they're mm. nothing less than like preparation. But even still, that can be hard for me. And I think that on top of all that, like I've just been mentioning throughout, that when I really accept something as a goal and, and it really means something to me and I prepare for it, like I really, really want to see it through. Yeah, so Jonathan there in that interview, and he talked about this a couple times, he, he was talking about goal setting with regard to um, almost needing to limit how he sets goals because sometimes he can get sucked into making everything a goal. And, and I certainly relate to this, even going out and maybe doing a warm up, and maybe I should just hang like in the middle when I'm feeling a flash pump. But now like I'm in my head and I'm like, oh no, I want to flash this warm up. And that really wasn't the goal for the day, right? The goal was to go work on something else. And Jonathan was talking about that in that lens and essentially trying to refocus what a goal is. And how, how does that resonate for you and, and how can the rest of us kind of take a look at that goal setting process and and use it in a way that's healthy but not maybe um, one that completely overtakes all of the climbing that we do that's a great question in terms of like how do we pick what inspires us right and I think that sometimes like getting distracted by wanting to send is something that can happen like you said it can happen on a warm-up it can happen like anytime and when we want like when we want to be really motivated by something it needs to be something that like you wake up in the morning and you're like yeah i want to do that and it gets you to the gym and it gets you through that workout but i think where it actually becomes an issue is like we can care about a route so much like you were saying with like you're you know you have all these climbers on the ground you have friends watching and it's you get on the wall and all you can think about while you're climbing is like, am I going to send? Am I messing this up? Is my foot going to slip? And it's it gets to the point where you might still send, right? Like you might be able to work through all of that and still send. But you spent the whole time like completely distracted and not enjoying yourself. So that's where goal setting can be really limiting. And there's two sides to what he's talking about, right? There's like the getting distracted by other things. And then there's like getting distracted by the goal itself. And I think I'm more talking about that second one. We can go back to the first one. But the second one is very much like we want to make the distinction, let the goal get you to the wall and let the goal like inform the way you prepare and do all the things to get there. But then when you leave the ground, how can you focus on the actual act of climbing well? rather than getting distracted by thinking about whether you're going to send or not. Oh, yeah, I like this perspective. This is good. Let the goal get us to the wall. Training, get us hyped, get us out of bed in the morning. But then when you pull on, just focus on the climb. And I'll tell you, I have definitely fallen victim to being in the middle of a climb and maybe shaking out on a rest and thinking about the send or the goal. You know, the goal pops back into the head. And you mentioned Melina Costanza there, and this is there's an acute amount of pressure, I think, on comp climbers, but we can all uh, relate to this in our own way. 
Uh, so I want to hear what she had to say with regard to her shift in how she sees her performance and her goal setting. A lot of my goals nowadays have been a lot more focused on a feeling. And I know that it setting specific goals works for a lot of people. I've just learned through trial and error that it's not how I perform the best. I'll go into a round thinking, I want every first go to be my best go. Or I'll go into a round thinking, I want to trust volume feet 100%, no hesitation there. I want to have very precise foot placement. So I'll go into clomps with very specific focuses like those, but not necessarily, I want to beat this person, I want to get this placement, I want to make this, I want to make team, something like that. I think I've let go of myself in comparison to other people. And I think that's been a blessing and a curse because I can win a comp and still feel like I didn't reach my goal. (laughs) I think that what she was talking about there, it's like, in a way, she said like, oh, I don't have this goal of winning anymore. But in a comp, it's like, obviously, the goal is to do well, right? And like, we want to perform our best. And, and so I think that she's talking about how most of us have, when we're leaving the ground, we want to send, right? But sometimes we feel like we have to pretend that we don't have that goal. Or we just don't think about it, right? Like we don't put, you know, maybe we're saying like, oh, my goal on this attempt is to red point when really like we five hung the route last time. So maybe our goal should actually be to four hang. And that could help us take smaller steps in terms of how we approach it. Um, maybe we even choose to take low on the route in, ter- in order to like get a bigger link, you know, but she is talking about getting back to baseline, I think, of being able like we get so end result motivated we get so focused on winning that we forget to care about how we get there and so she's really done Mm -hmm. a great job of bringing her attention back in the other direction back towards the process of getting there and in the end right like the goofy kind of paradox is that like we focus so much on the end result goal that it keeps us from sending or it keeps us from winning because she goes out there and is just like i gotta make the team i gotta make the team And like the whole time, she's just so tense that she's this amazing climber and being that tense can make us climb several grades below our ability. Um, And you see that in comps all the time. You see people, and I think Mo was talking about this, right? Like after the comp, going back out, relaxed and just like, oh yeah, this problem could be like in my warm-up circuit. It's so chill, but the nerves, this pressure to do well keeps us from performing well. And we do that all the time outside, like, you know, when you're talking about people getting out on the weekends, you know, people I'm coaching all the time will get so wrapped up that even if I give them a drill to do that makes the climb harder and they're on a moderate route, they will sacrifice the drill in order to not fall. Even if I explicitly tell them, like, Mm. it's so okay to fall. The whole point is to do this drill because it's kind of programmed into us of like, we need to get to the end. Like we need to finish this. We need to send. And so if we can come back to the other side and say, the way that I do this matters, what actually happens is we end up climbing better and then we achieve the goal anyway. So I think specifically, especially in that context where the like the goal is kind of outside of her control in terms of who she's competing against and like the the idea of a comp is like to place as high as you possibly can 
So there's not really, you don't have to be too nuanced about how you approach it. Like you just want to go out there and climb your very best and be in performance mode that kind of letting that goal go. It's like, okay, it's implied that I care about that. Now I'm going to come back over here and really focus on how I'm doing it and climbing well. So we can use that as people who climb in the gym or outdoors and also bringing in that nuance of knowing, am I trying to send right now or am I in the process of getting the experience that I need to send later? And will that inform maybe my willingness to, like you were saying, like take on a warm up instead of getting flash pumped? Like what is my intention of being on this climb? Yeah, I like that focus on the intention. That's critical and also hard, you know? I don't know what it is, human nature or competitive nature or whatever it is, but, you know, I might have a clear intention in my head as I'm driving to the crag, but then you get to the climb and there's the climb. And maybe the intention was to just work it in sections and low point or high point or whatever it might be. And then there's a bunch of people cheering and they're there or the climb's got a line and, and then the intention shifts. Um, or maybe the intention doesn't shift, but in that moment, you lose the intention. So how do you coach your clients or how can we um, really hold the intention that, that we have when we're thinking rationally and, and actually carry that into our day of climbing? I mean, there's a few sides to that. You know, anxiety kind of comes from focusing on what we can't control. And so when I'm in the car, that's like the prime time for anxiety. Like, I don't know what the conditions are yet. I haven't touched the rock yet. I don't know how my body feels. Maybe I'm coming off a rest day. I'm really hoping I feel better than when I was two days on last time. You know, I'm like, everything's spinning through my head. It can be helpful to take a pause and say, okay, what was I up to last time? Like, what went well in my last session? What at the end of the last session did I feel like I needed to improve? Right. So in that case of maybe like the red is a great example, we can get into that one hang wonder zone because we're getting pumped and like the crux is hard and we get there pumped and then we don't execute. And if we're in send mode all the time, we like fall at the crux, get back on, do the crux and go to the top. And I've seen friends get stuck on a route for years because of that approach. So we might be in the car and say, okay, you know what? Today, I need to make links from lower and lower down below the crux. I want a low point each time. And that's going to, in the, like, I'm saying that in the car, and then I can remind my partner of that at the wall. And that way, before I get on the climb, I'm like, okay, I know what I'm going to do on the wall, right? I know what my approach is going to be. So those kind of analytical approaches work really well before the day starts, before I get on. Oh, man. Anxiety comes from focusing on what we can't control. Now, that is a pull quote right there. I love that. And, and how true, especially as we're kind of letting our minds spin on things before we even get to the climb, before we even see it, before we even pull onto it. That just seems so valuable. Another thing that you just said there, Laura, that I really liked was this, this practice of vocalizing it. Like, saying out loud to your partners in the car or when you're at the crag or, or, you know, at the gym, just vocalizing your goal. I want a low point, you know, and maybe even, I don't know, what do you think? Like asking them to remind you because you can get to that point, right? Where you're, you're on the climb and you're starting to flow and all of a sudden you want to try hard. 
And sometimes it helps for somebody to call up and just be like, hey, you should take here because you wanted to low point. So get your rest or, or whatever the case may be, just kind of having them help to remind us of our goals, right? And, and they can only do that if we vocalize those goals to them. Uh, and I think that we can get, whether we're trying to send or not, like our partners on the ground, they want to support us so badly. Like even if they're doing like, you know, every once in a while we have a partner that does not support us well. And even those partners, they want to support us really badly. Like they just don't know. Maybe they're trying to support us in a way that they've seen other people be supported or that they want to be supported. And so we can really, we can use this tool that we have as doing a partner sport. Um, you know, not everyone climbs in partnerships, but a lot of climbing is framed in groups and partnerships. And so we can tell people how we want to be coached and that people love having a job. Like when someone tells me, you know, breaks down the route for me and they're like, I want you to keep me close at the fourth and tell me to go for it at the fifth and remind me to breathe at the sixth. I'm like, I got this. Like I got a job. I am on it. And um, and we can do that in yes. our climbing partnerships. Right. And I think remembering that once we're on the wall, like outside of remembering our logistics, like I'm going to take at the fourth instead of going for it. We also want to be focusing on what we can control on the wall, which is is essentially like focusing on our body and the actual action of climbing. So instead of being like trying to run through beta as we're climbing, we'll like run through it on the ground. And then once we start climbing, we like want to focus on things like our breathing, our pacing, our relaxation or tension. Like, are we over gripping? Are we using the right amount of tension? and where our eyes are looking like those are really actionable cues and our partners can do a great job of helping us with that like hey man make sure you're breathing you know like relax your grip at the rest take your time um keep moving if they notice us stalling out in the middle of the crux those kind of cues are so actionable that they're a lot more helpful than cueing like thinking based attention when we're on the wall yeah so great. Love, love that. And and just like the support, even if I know that this is the point where I'm going to rest, just hearing that from the ground, like, yep, this is where your rest is. I'll start a timer for you, whatever. Just feeling that love and that support from the bottom. I, I know everybody responds to different things, but I love me some positive support coming up from the ground when I'm, you know, at a rest or when I'm about to to punch into something tough. Uh, this is so, uh, this is so great. I got the biggest smile. I know it was a podcast. I got the biggest smile on my face. Nobody can see it right now. What other themes or what, what jumped out to you as you were listening to these athletes t talk through mental game? I think the next piece actually is super related to what we were talking about. And that's this idea that our mental game is so attached to the people around us. And I think that that's something like Mary touched on that a lot when she was talking about being a Stoke vampire. Yeah, and I just I love that term, Stoke Vampire. It's it's such a good term, and Mary describes herself as that. Let, let's hear from her on on what she has to say about working with different partners and climbing with different people. And then, yeah, I want to hear what your take is on it. I'm very sensitive to who I have around me because, like, I climb really well when people are really um, high energy, stoked. Like, if they're like really positive individuals who, I don't know, people who are just those special people, um, like Tom would be one of them. He doesn't care how hard you climb. He's not competing with you. He's not competing with anyone. He's competing with himself. He's just there to have a good time. And 
yeah, I'm there to have a good time and to push myself too. And so I respond really well to people who are there to have a good time and who think that rock climbing is fun. So yeah, Mary uh, and talking about Tom there, two people that you know well and that you climb with. Um, Mary, describing herself as a Stoke vampire, what do you make of that? It's funny to say that. It sounds like it's saying like, oh, I'm like taking this away from people. But I've climbed with Mary a ton and actually she is like such a Stoke giver, right? Like she comes out when you're working on a project and you feel invincible. You're like, hell yeah, I got this, right? Because she just brings that energy and... um. I think, you know, there's an approach to therapy that I use a lot um, it, from relational cultural theory that's essentially looking at the systems that we exist in and the idea is that we heal through relationships, right? And mental performance isn't really all that separate from mental health, like the same way physical performance mm -hmm. and physical health are tied together. And so when I'm looking at that with climbers, I'm looking at, okay, how are we not just healing, but also performing through our relationships. And so figuring out ways not just to seek out people who are already positive, but really to lean in and develop trust with the people that we are climbing with. Yeah, I'm, I'm with Mary on this one 100%. I think there's, there's a lot in life that is freaking hard and stressful and Climbing should be just a ton of fun. And so I love to, to surround myself with positive people, people who are um, psyched when they're doing well, but also like don't get super down on themselves when they're doing poorly. And, and I like to try to do that as well. And, and I, I kind of really appreciated how she pointed out Tom there saying how he, you know, he's not competing with anybody else. He's only competing with himself. And I love that. But also I would be lying if I said that I always embodied that you know i think maybe tom has has tapped into a bit of a a zen jedi state with regard to that because at least for me sometimes when i'm out there and i'm with my friends um maybe we're all working on the same project or um you know somebody flashes something and then i feel like oh well i want to flash it or we're working on the same thing over the course of a few days a few sessions and i can feel in myself like a little bit of a competitiveness or maybe even nervous energy about you know, are they going to send it before me? And I don't know if part of that's healthy because it's kind of motivates me to try harder or, you know, it's unhealthy. I really appreciate you naming that because I actually noticed that a lot of the athletes didn't talk about that feeling of competitiveness outside of maybe talking about competitions or being overwhelmed by it. But I think it's kind of taboo to say, you know, I'm at the mm -hmm. crag and I'm thinking about, you know, how do I measure up next to this other person? And it really gets at this core need as humans to feel like we belong and to feel like we're enough and to know where we stand in the community. And a lot of times what we are actually worried about, you know, we're at the crag, we're with our partner, they send first. And now we're like, who's going to come back with me next Sunday? Totally. You know, like, are they just going to move on? And and so when we really get to that, at first we're like, oh, I'm just this like ego, like walking around, wanting to be better than people. And we look below the surface there and we're like, oh, no, that's just like the part of me that wants to know that I still belong in this group and that I'm enough. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when we really don't feel like we're enough, like we start to try to earn that by being better than other people. But it's still this like it's still coming from a place of like, oh, I just want to know that I matter. 
you know, and and I think for sure, yeah, that's something that everyone across the board struggles with, whether it's comparison to themselves, like a past version of themselves or comparison to another friend or someone they've never met, but they like think about when they're out climbing or they see someone at the gym, like everyone's going to compare themselves to other people. And if we can take it back to reminding ourselves, like giving ourselves compassion in that moment and saying like, oh yeah, you really want to belong here. And sometimes being in communities where we know that we belong no matter what, or looking for those relationships. And if we can't find them externally, then doing that work internally and like knowing that we belong to ourselves, that that kind of work can really just help ease that. And we can just normalize it. Like, oh yeah, everyone feels that way at some point. It's because we're humans, right? (laughs) Oh, God, this is the therapy session that I needed this morning, Laura. And and I hope for everybody who's listening, this is the therapy session that you needed this morning as well. Because, you know, again, this is what really sets climbing apart. And we're talking about ego and belonging and self-worth and community here. And climbing can obviously really benefit from all of this. But, but this also impacts every aspect of our lives. Uh, when we're working through some of these things. And I'm curious, because you've brought up Tom, Mary brought up Tom, I've had plenty of conversations with Tom, so let's just keep picking on Tom in the best way. Why is he so good, do you think, at at being a positive partner in all scenarios, it, it seems like? And how can the rest of us learn from that? How can we be positive partners? It's easy to be positive when you just sent the proj, and it's like high fives to everyone, but, you know, when you're having a tougher day or when everybody else is sending and you're injured or whatever it is, you know, it's, it's not as easy. Yeah. I mean, that's a multifaceted question of like, why is Tom so great at it? And then how can we do it? And so maybe taking both of those, like, and starting out, like, I don't psychoanalyze my friends, right? Like, I like don't want to like be in that space. It's probably a good rule. But what I do see from Tom is just, he does so much of his own work. And he's also so committed to this belief that like when someone succeeds, like everyone's succeeding, right? Like he is invested in other people accomplishing their goals. And I, from what I've observed, like he gets real joy out of it, you know, like he really loves it. And he is like, it's like when he gets on the wall, he's all in on his climbing and when he comes down and he's going to belay you, he's all in on your climbing. And it's like, he gets that absolute joy. And it brings up like, kind of thoughts about equanimity, like this idea of like, everyone's on their own life's journey, right? Like, we can't really control the direction that someone else moves in, but we can walk next to them and just help where we can, you know, and and it's this idea that like, if one person is safe, everyone around us is safer. And I think he has gone, you know, and there's a lot of work that he does behind the scenes. Like he's reached out to me time and time again when I've been like had just, you know, been dealing with stuff like on social media or in the media in general and climbing around like people being transphobic. You know, Tom will be one of the first people to reach out and just say, like, how can I help you? Are you doing okay? You know, let me like, I'll bring you on my podcast. Like, we'll talk about it. You know, we'll humanize you. 
and he's really good at humanizing, you know, and he sees he like sees that collective ability to just um, uplift everyone around him. And that is a part of his way of showing up in the world. I think it's why he's such a great coach, too. Right. Because he's like really good at humanizing people's stories. So, you know, in terms of how that can relate to other people, like how do we show up as a better partner? Obviously, we can do our own work to like truly believe that we belong in a space and that's kind of infectious and that takes tons of work. Right. So like even before that, like we can just show up in a space and like, you know, before we look at someone's climbing performance, like we can remember to just look at them as a human and say, oh, man, there's so much going on for them that I know nothing about. How can I just support them in doing something they love today? Like, how can I be so on Mm. their team that when they clip the chains on their project, like, I feel like I won too, because I know, like, each time that someone clips the chains and is celebrating, like, I get to, if I let myself, I can be in that with them, and I can really feed on their joy. You know, I think Mary's words of being a Stoke vampire, it's kind of comes full circle here because... It's this idea that, oh, if we celebrate with other people rather than going straight to comparison, then we get to celebrate every time, right? Like we don't just get to celebrate when we clip the chains. We get these little stoke bursts every time that someone has a breakthrough, every time someone figures out the crux move, and that can launch us forward. So I think like that kind of collective energy is really powerful and just reminding ourselves to see everyone as as a human being who's struggling just like we are, um, that can kind of dissipate some of that competition and help us be the partner that we want to be. God, hell yeah. I love this, Laura. This is, this is just so good. I mean, this, first of all, uh, just seeing everybody as a human who has a million layers um, that go beyond their climbing, uh, I love is just so critical, obviously applies to everything we do in life. The, the cashier at the grocery store is a human who has hopes and dreams and and their own struggles and challenges, and, and can we all just be like aware, supportive, kind, stoked people? Uh, just in general, I, I love that. It's something that I try to work on, and it's something that takes work, of course. Uh, with climbing specifically, I think we do see that a lot, and I, I like that you highlighted it. I mean, specifically for me, just recently, I was out at Potosi climbing with some real heavy hitters, and I was just absolutely, you know, max effort trying this 12A that was just just eating me up. And Jonathan Segrist was like five routes over, putting in max effort on, I think, what's going to be maybe like a 15A or B. It's this new thing he's doing. And, you know, the crag, it was a pretty busy day at Potosi. And it was, the, the support was universal, right? The same people that were yelling to Jonathan, you know, like, let's go, man, you got this. Were also, when I was on my 12A flailing, they were still like, Ryan, you got this. Come on, like, nice. And I don't know, just that that scalable support. Something about climbing is is really special in that is you're you're trying as hard as you can, whether it's on 5.8 or 5.15, and the support can be universal and the same. We can we can celebrate in one another's effort as well as their victories, whether they climb harder than us or don't climb as hard as us. And I really love that. Thank you for for highlighting that. Obviously, you can hear my voice that I am psyched. Um, so let's let's now like keep this psych train going and talk about something that um, we all deal with, uh, of course, on our own levels, and that's fear. 
And fear came up throughout the season. Of course, we've talked about fear of failure here, at least, um, you know, kind of tangentially as we've talked about ego and self-worth and belonging, competitiveness, these kinds of things. Let's talk about fear of falling, if we could, for a little bit, because I think that is another one that really can have an impact on all of us. And, and of course, um, it did on you as well. Yeah, I heard it in the interviews, but also just in general in the climbing community. I think we have this misconception that fear is just happening in our mind, right? It's like this thing that we can control with our thinking and that's we just have to think better thoughts and we won't be afraid. And fear is a nervous system reaction, right? So our mind and our thinking are involved in that, but it's also our whole body, right? And so when we're looking at fear, it's not about changing our thoughts. It's really about our approach and the way that we show up in situations where we're afraid and the way that we practice. So, you know, Allison gave the example of like the whipper therapy that is luckily becoming slightly less popular. Um, but I was very much like a, a youth climber who was put in that same situation where it was like, we're going to make the finish hold spin and we'll do no take Tuesdays and we'll just like try and kind of shock it out of you. Yeah, this seemed like a pretty traumatic experience for Allison and obviously for a lot of other climbers as well. Let's hear what Allison had to say first. We would drive to the city that was near us like three or four times a year, maybe less, and practice falling. Like that was the only reason we were there. So it wasn't like practicing sport climbing. It was to practice falling. I mean, people still do it. It was sort of an accepted way to get kids comfortable falling was going to a gym, a lead gym, and taking these massive whippers from the top of the, like you would, you know, we'd be at the top of the wall and the last draw that was clipped would be like, you know, you'd have skipped two draws and then you'd let go and take this huge ball. And that just didn't, that just didn't work for me. And I think I'm still mm. like, on like I, that would just encourage me to be scared when I was like, leading because I was always scared to take those giant falls. So instead of being introduced to sport climbing and falling as like taking very normal falls, I just I I haven't taken that many normal falls in my life. Like I've just taken these giant whippers from the top of the wall. What happens is we ingrain a fear response, right? Not just a not just a thinking based fear response, but we ingrain a fear response in our body. Right. Because you think of mm -hmm. like you take a kid to the top of the wall or an adult. This happens all the time. Maybe we are moving past it like the tiniest bit. But you, I still see it all the time in, you know, a friend takes their friend out or we're doing the lead class in the gym. And it's interesting talking to Hazel about this because she said it's actually less common and lead tests in Europe. And I'm not 100 percent sure why. But in the U.S., it's like, oh, yeah, to get your lead card you have to take some huge whip and what happens is you know you you let go of the wall and you're you're trying to dissociate to get it over with right like your whole body just like clenches up like you're super tense you close your eyes maybe you scream right like you have this really ingrained fear response so then when you get on the wall again your body remembers that right the body remembers so much especially fear responses. And that's an adaptive thing. That's an amazing thing that our body does. But then it gets on the wall, gets to a hard move. The thought comes in, I might fall here, and our body goes into that position. 
right? Like full panic mode. And people, one, they're like, why do I go from zero to a hundred? It's sometimes because we've ingrained that, that that's what we should do when we think we're going to fall. Interesting. And so, you know, a different approach when we talk about falling practice, there's a nuance there, you know, of yes, we should be taking falls to learn how to fall well. But when most mental training coaches work with climbers, I know we train all our warriors way trainers to do this. We start climbers well below the bolt, like a body length and a half below the bolt. And we teach them the technique of falling well. So every fall, they're exhaling, they're in a relaxed body position, they're looking down in the direction their body's moving, so their eyes are open. And we don't just teach them that, but we also teach them to be aware and be able to articulate what they were focusing on. So if they had their eyes open, but they don't know what they saw, we'll be like, okay, go back up. And this time I want you to tell me what you saw. Or this time I want you to know whether you were grabbing the rope or not. And we don't have folks increment up to bigger falls until they're aware of what they did with their breathing eyes and body position. And so we're bringing that embodiment aspect back into falling. We're teaching someone to fall well and with re and relaxed. So then they learn, oh, well, falling is okay. And you keep from keep that person from ingraining those little micro traumas in their body from falling practice. And that, you know, by the time they're taking big falls, they've been working so hard to just master the technique of falling that they're like, okay, this is almost boring. Like, I know what to do. There's not like we're never <laughs> we're never working at like the edge of fear. We're working at the edge of like, where can you maintain full attention? And so it becomes a really relaxing process, actually, for most folks to practice falling that way. That is so cool. That is so profoundly cool for those who struggle with a fear of falling. And all of us, all of us experience fear of falling, right? It's like evolutionary psychology keeping us alive for millions of years. But, you know, some more than others, I certainly was, was gripped and, and some days still am gripped. Uh, by falling, whether it's bouldering because I don't want to break my ankles or it's, you know, on, on a lead route. Um, what you just said there, God, everybody just like rewind, you know, four minutes and re-listen to what Lord just said there. That is um, such a, a profound and I think incredibly, I don't know, empowering, achievable way to look at how to deal with the fear response and practically how to work on that fear of falling. Is there anything else, I mean, short of taking a course with you, of course, and we'll, we'll put some details in that later, but anything else that you see when you work with clients with regard to, to fears of falling? I think alongside that practice, what I really work on with folks is learning how to make personal risk decisions. And that's, I know you talked to Hazel about this idea of like real or perceived risk and why we kind of don't like that term because risk and the way that our body experiences fear isn't really rational or irrational, right? It, like I was saying before, it's a nervous system response. So when we're going up to climb, we don't want to be thinking like, am I going to hit the ground or not? Okay, if I'm not going to hit the ground, I should take the fall. And if I am going to hit the ground, then I shouldn't take the fall. Like, obviously, if I'm going to hit the ground and I'm going to get a catastrophic injury, like, yeah, don't 
don't go take the fall. But that it needs to be more nuanced than that when we're making our risk decisions if we want to commit 100% to a climb. So I guess just take a lot of time with folks to learn this process of making personal risk decisions based on their experience. So essentially assessing what terrain they're climbing into. You know, I'm I'm going, if I'm on a sport climb in the red, like my next bolt is a body length and a half away. Like I'm looking down below me. Um, I'm in the madness cave. It's super steep. And then, you know, and then I'm looking back up and like kind of choosing the line of the path of least resistance, right? Looking for the easiest way to get from where I am to the next stopping point. And all of that's objective, right? I like at that point, I'm just asking people to take in information. And then once they have that information, they weigh it against their personal falling experience. So not their personal climbing experience, but really, have I fallen in this terrain before? Is this familiar to me? Or is it something that I don't have experience? So my body doesn't know whether it's safe or not. And if they can say, yeah, like, yeah, I take whips in the madness cave all the time. I fall while clipping. Like, I've worked up to this. Then it's a yes fall zone. And that means, like, we're going to be able to commit attention 100% to climbing. If we fall, we fall. No big deal. And, like, now let's go for it. Right? And the fact that I made that decision... Um, and I think Maiza was talking about that a little bit. Like I made that decision, so I'm going to flip the switch. I'm going to say, this is okay, now I'm going to go. Anything else, I teach folks to approach as a no-fall zone, which just means that I'm going to honor my body's wisdom when it tells me not to commit 100% and, and tells me to listen to doubts. So it could be, you know, I'm like climbing in the red all year long, I take a trip out to California to climb some sick granite and I'm like climbing on gear for the first time in a year and maybe I don't ever fall on my gear and I'm watching the person next to me take whip after whip after whip on their on their trad project and I'm like I should be able to do that if I'm saying okay this should be a yes fall zone for me what I'm really saying is I want something for nothing right? I don't want to have to put in the work to have a better mental game. I just want to be like that person next to me. And Mm -hmm. so saying like, oh, obviously, I'm not going to treat this as a yes fall zone. I'm going to have doubts that come up. Then I can choose how to engage with a no fall zone. And I can say like, yeah, maybe I just like if I'm getting nervous, I'll down climb and take maybe this is really easy terrain. And I'm just going to like trust my climbing ability. And I'm going to like climb smoothly and well, but I'll know that I can down climb if I need to. Um, Maybe I'm going to shorten the distance between when I place my next piece of gear and just give myself another chance to reset. There's tons of ways to approach a no fall zone, but I think delineating what a yes fall zone is for folks and teaching them to make that decision based on their own experience can be this really awesome kind of accompaniment to falling practice. Because once we decide, once we realize that we do have yes fall zones, we start to trust our body's intuition of risk assessment a lot more. I really like this identifying that yes versus no fall zone and um, practicing that. And I think that is something that probably does um, take some practice. I Even on my fall project, I kept falling at the upper crux of, of Jesus Wept. You, you know that route well. And, uh, and you know, there's a, a friggin' 
draw, a little permadraw, right in the middle of the upper crux. And so every time I would go through it, not only would it disrupt my flow to, to clip that, but also when I would fall, I would spike because it's more vertical in that section, right? And, and so I would just, I kept taking these spikes like one after another and until one day I was like talking to my buddy and it's way up on the route. And I was like, you know what? I should just skip that clip, right? And, and so it was, you know, very scary at first doing that, like going into that crux without having that clip kind of right at my hip. But then when I blew the move, which I did a million times, it ended up being maybe a 20 or 25 foot fall, but it was very soft, like didn't spike. It was totally safe. I was, you know, 65 feet up in the route at that time. And so that kind of became my yes fall zone there. Um, and, it, and it took some time. I probably could have saved some ankle bruising had I done that a little bit earlier, but mentally acknowledging that it was a yes fall zone and then also becoming, in my case, becoming comfortable clipping, skipping the clip. Um, that was that was a very interesting process for me. And practically speaking, how do you recommend clients do that? Or like, are you assessing it from the ground and determining if there's hazards if a fall happens? Like, how does that break down? Yeah, I teach folks to do it from the ground and then to make it a part of their resting, you know, to do, we even in the warrior's mm -hmm. way, Arno calls it the lookings. And, um, and I'll usually just tell people to look while they're resting. But if like having that fun work of like, I'm doing my lookings, you know, having that wording can be helpful, then that's awesome, right? right? Of saying like, oh, okay, I'm stopped. I'm resting anyway. Like, let me just recheck in. Like, let me actually look up, find the next bolt, look down below me at the terrain below me, look back up and take that path of like, figure out that path of least resistance. And if I'm projecting, that's my cue to say, okay, this is where I'm going to be going. Like, I'm remembering the beta. And then taking the time to say, you know, you're below that that crux of Jesus wept and you're taking the time, you're shaking out, right? And I uh, I don't think I shared this with you, but Jesus wept was a two-year project for me when I lived in the red. I love it. So when you're talking about that, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that. And I like definitely can relate when it was such a formative route for me. And so I can remember like st being at that rest, like going into that upper crux, um, you're already a little pumped and... And you're so you're taking the time to shake out and you're kind of taking the time to see yourself up there and say, yeah, this is going to be a yes fall zone for me. I've taken this fall before and I know that if I focus on climbing well, that if I fall in the process of doing that, it's totally OK. So I'm actually doing it at the rest and I'm calming, you know, I'm calming my body down. I'm shaking out, recovering energy. I'm also recovering mental energy. I'm taking the time to revisit that risk assessment before I go so that that way when I'm there, I'm just redirecting to a decision that I already made. Um, and for some folks, that's great. Yeah, for some folks, I teach them just to practice it on top rope, like go to the gym, practice stopping and reminding yourself that you can fall on top rope so that you're getting reps of doing it in like a really true yes fall zone in a place where you don't have any doubt that falling is okay, because then you learn, oh, that's what it feels like to make a yes fall decision. Well, I could probably do that in other areas of my climbing too. And then they start to get used to this idea of what does it mean to remind yourself that it's okay to fall and then commit 100%. Oh, I dig that so much. I love that even just at the gym on the top rope. Yeah, practicing that assessment and getting used to making that decision 
which then can put it out of your mind when you pull into that crux where you can be fully focused on the movement, on the trying, because you already 10 seconds earlier said, I'm, I'm climbing into a yes fall zone. So you've made that decision. You don't have to think about it, which you know I had done for, for many goes on Jesus Wept as I was pulling into those pockets and I'm doing the step through and I'm flagging out and I'm like, am I going to, is this bad? And you know, like you don't want to be thinking that when you're trying to climb at your absolute limit. Practicing that makes a ton of sense. I love it, Laura. This is great. Okay, good. Well, let's keep jamming then and maybe shift towards fear of failure, if that makes sense. Or is there more on fear of falling that you feel we haven't tackled? Because I know this is a big one for the audience. I mean, it's it's a big one for everybody, but uh, certainly a big one for, for climbers who haven't done a lot of falling. Yeah, it's not a new point, but just what you were just saying, right? It's like we make risk decisions all the time in our climbing. We just make them at really energy intensive times. In at, at times, sometimes when it's too late to actually make them. like And I've been one of those people, right, who all of a sudden I find it in me to down climb the crux that I just climbed up that I thought was at my absolute limit because I decided it was unreasonable to fall. And I'm like down climbing moves that I could barely get up and just, you know, become superhuman strength comes out of nowhere because we make this risk decision. And then we get to the bolt and we're right. like, okay, my climbing day is shot because I'm so exhausted because my body just thought I was going to die, right? Like I put that right. much survival energy into it. And so I think learning how to make risk assessments at the least energy intensive time in the least energy intensive way is one of those mental skills that's so powerful for fear of falling. So just knowing like, oh, I already make risk decisions. I'm just learning how to do that at a better time is a nice reminder. Yes. Yeah. What a, what a, just a masterclass on fear of falling that you just shared with us, Lore. Uh, obviously, if people want to um, deeply work on this, they can work with you, right? Through Warrior's Way. Hazel's got uh, a great thing going with Strong Mind. There's some really great programs and resources out there, um, some of which I used when I was working through my own. So, you know, fear, fear of falling, while it impacts everyone, because we, we all have this, this human um, kind of reaction for safety, it, it can be trained, it can be learned. And to your point that you made earlier, you can even relax into falling, which I think is really cool. And something that maybe the pros have by and large worked through, right? Allison Vest talked about a fear of falling on sketchy top outs of, of boulders. And, and of course, kind of having a traumatic falling experience when she was a younger climber with that like, quote unquote, fall practice. Um, but for the most part, it does seem like the pros when it comes to fear struggle more with a fear of failure than a fear of falling. And I'm curious, as you look back on season two with these elite climbers, what themes came through with regard specifically to failure, fears of failure? The theme that really stood out to me was the reframe around fear of failure that I heard from so many climbers. And obviously, Peter Croft has this amazing way of articulating this of like, but I heard it pretty much everyone said it in some different way of like, that when we think about not achieving the goal, it can be so devastating, right? We can be like so afraid to even try. But then this idea of like, wouldn't the worst thing in the world, like worse than even not achieving the goal, be to never try, like to never get the experience of working towards it. And I heard that a lot with the pros of like, when that anxiety creeps in, and they're like, what if I never accomplish it? That they were able to redirect to this idea of, well, wouldn't 
the best life in the world be a life where I got to go out and try the thing that I care about the most? And like, what if I, you know, if my climbing career or my life ends in the process of working towards this goal, would that be a life well lived? You know, and being able to answer yes to that question sounded like it's what motivates a lot of these climbers to try things that are scary to them, that they not scary, like fear of falling scary, but scary, like, I don't know whether I'll ever do this scary. And mm -hmm. being able to do that reframe is one of the things that I think professional climbers who do try things that are impossible in the outset, it really it grounds them in that process because they're able to reflect on how much worse it would be if they never got to try it. Hell yeah to that. I like that. Let's let's check in with Jonathan Segrist because I feel like we talked a lot about this, kind of the edge of impossible and how to frame success versus failure. And then I'd love your perspective. I think what separates the lifers, the ones that are around for decades versus the ones that are around for a season or two, is that ability to digest failure and to deal with like being committed to something and then basically having it fall through. Yeah, that's just such a powerful thing that he just said there. I mean, maybe one of my most favorite quotes of the entire season or maybe the entire podcast itself is this concept that what separates the lifers from, from those that kind of flare out is the ability to handle failure. And what's your take on that? How can that apply to those of us whose careers don't depend on a climb maybe as much as, as some of these guests that we've had on the show here, but who do put a lot of effort and uh, a, a lot of importance on how we climb? You know, the theme that I see and the way that I teach this to folks in the simplest way that I can, because as soon as we start to talk about like tying identities to outcome and, you know, like that's what where a lot of fear of failure comes from is right feeling like if I fail at this, then I am a failure. Mm -hmm. And that's who I like, that's part of my identity. And so when I'm looking at that, it can be such a complicated topic to talk about. And it's one that people get really philosophical about and like go out in the ether. And so whenever I'm trying to bring people back in and make it really tangible, I point towards the people that I see doing this really well are the people that every time they produce an outcome, whether it's like a success or a failure or anywhere in the middle, they're asking themselves, what did I do well? What can I do better next time? Right. And it's like they send their project and they ask that question. They fall off their mm. project, they ask that question, right? The season ends and like they, or the, the trip ends and they're driving home and they're asking that question. And they're not just asking the question, what can I improve, right? They're starting with that question of what did I do well? Um, and the more actionable, the better, right? It's like, we don't want to just say like, what I did well was like, oh, I guess I showed up and like, what I need to improve is like, well, I need to be a stronger human. You know, it's like that Correct. stuff doesn't really fuel us in another direction, but it's people who can really look at an outcome and they don't see it as the end. Like it could be that you'll never get on that route again, right? You took your once in a lifetime trip, like across the world, you saved up for a year for it. Like this was your shot to go there and now you're back to all your life obligations, but you will do something else hard, right? So you could say like, oh, I failed at 
sending that thing, right? There's walls that I've gone to climb on with folks in like kind of remote places that I probably won't go back to, right? But they've totally informed the way that I approach my next big challenge. And when we can really see those like quote unquote failures as giving us some of the richest information about how to go, how to move onward to the next challenge i think we feel less afraid of them right because we need that information we need that feedback to keep moving um so yeah. when we can integrate that in a really productive way it feels less scary yeah i really like how you ask those questions whether you send or not you know how it's kind of a novel idea it's very simple, and I like I like simple ideas as well. Uh, but just this idea of sending the thing, you know, achieving what what would one would maybe consider one hundred percent success, but then asking yourself, what did I do right? What could I improve? Um, interestingly, I think Melina Costanza kind of touched on that in in what she was talking about as well. She could she could get first place in a comp, but because the goal that she's setting isn't to get a place, it was maybe to work on perfect footwork she could get first place in a comp maybe not have perfect footwork and and walk away feeling like maybe it wasn't 100 percent success and that's really cool to 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 take into our own climbing as well a gym session or out at the crag whether you do the thing or you don't do the thing getting that habit of saying what did i do well what could i improve um there's there's just like a nice balance there's a nice fairness to that uh, assessment really dig that and Man, I mean, we could talk for seven more hours here. We're gonna have to do another one of these conversations, but I, I, I want to be mindful of of your time. And so I think maybe what I'd like to do here before we shift towards hearing about all the cool stuff you have going on personally is to wrap in and wrap up with this concept of fun. And Mary Eden touched on it. You've touched on it, of course. And you, and you brought up Peter Croft earlier. And so how can we not wrap up uh, this episode and also this season by bringing in the Yoda of climbing, uh, Peter Croft himself. So I, I want to play this clip from our chat and get your thoughts on it. If, if, if you're just kind of thinking, well, this is what I have to do um, because all my friends are doing this kind of thing. And because I, I've invested a certain amount of time, I kind of feel like I have to do this. You can give maybe 85, 90% if you, if you really, you know, push hard. But if it's the funnest thing in the world, then you can give it, you can easily give it 110%. You can shock yourself by like, holy crap, did I really do that? And that's happened to me like over and over again. And, and we all find that, you know, certain roots it's, uh, that, that really speak to you. But if you go where the fun is, and that's when you can give everything to it. And there's, I've been lucky enough a number of times in my climbing, it's not just kind of like, this is the coolest thing at the crag. I'm thinking this is the best thing in the world. And I'm just lucky enough to be here at this time and at those times, you become a better version of yourself. What I heard in that was this idea of taking the path of least resistance through a hard thing. Like when we were talking about hmm. sizing up the path of least resistance through a route, it's like we don't get on a 510 and try to figure out how to make it 512, right? We're looking for the easiest way to get from where we are to the next place. But sometimes we pick a really hard thing and the easiest way to go through that isn't easy. But what mm. I was hearing him say is like, you know, chase the joy. Like, do go throughout your whole climbing, like not just on a route, but like in your climbing journey, like 
take the path of least resistance to get where you want to go. And I was reminded, actually, when he was talking about that, I was thinking about um, this quote from Patrice Cullors, like one of the founders of Black Lives Matter. And, you know, she's a woman who does a lot of very hard things, like looking at systemic racism. There's no easy path through that. But she was talking about her path and she's like, every day I wake up and I find a way to just be easy. And I remind myself of that through the day, like find the path of ease through this situation. And when we're talking about the struggle, it's like, you know, I think people can misunderstand when we're talking about like loving to do hard things. They're like, oh, so I need to make it harder than it is or I should be suffering. It's like, oh, no, just we're going to choose really inspiring goals and those are going to bring up hard things and we're going to have to work through those. But we should be looking for the way to go through those that's m the most aligned with what we love, where our motivation comes from that place of joy and where we're taking care of ourselves in the best way possible. So it's like that easiest way through the struggle is I think what Peter was speaking to and this idea that we have a lot of choice in that and in our approach. Dig it. Love. Thank you, Laura. Thanks for, for sharing that perspective there. I thought that was really beautiful. What a great way for us to um, start to wrap up this, this conversation here on Mental Game. Before we talk about all the cool stuff that you have going on, was there anything that we didn't touch on today or is there anything that the pros tend not to struggle with that the average climber does? I think a lot of things are pretty universal. The one thing that I noticed in... Talk, like when the pros were talking that I didn't hear that a lot of the clients and athletes that I work with can struggle with is self-advocacy. I think that mm -hmm. when we're talking about relationships, you know, we can get into a place where, you know, a lot of times we were talking about like having too big of an ego or being too attached to our projects. And I think pro climbers do this really well where they you know, they can be really selfless and like really care about other people. But when it's time to get on their project, like they are putting their rope in that line. They are like ready to go. Like they make sure they get to the crag where their project is. You know, they pick belayers who have similar projects. And for people that are getting out on the weekends who have really busy lives, they're often having to sacrifice some of their goals to work within that structure of everything else going on. And so, you know, there are things that we can't control with that, and that's okay. But I think there is this side of mental game where folks can struggle with, like, knowing that their climbing matters and taking the time to figure out how to get on the things that matter to them. Um, so maybe that's a lesson we can learn from the pros and also just, like, that's also a practice, right? It's, like, learning how to ask someone, like, hey, can I go next on this thing or learning how to work into a rotation or have those conversations with climbing partners ahead of time to make sure that we're working towards our goals. That that's something I see a lot of folks struggle with in mental game that maybe you can see in the pros people who like really optimize their needs in the climbing space. And just like, I think that that can be limiting for folks sometimes. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Th thank you for bringing this up. I it's not something that I put a lot of thought into, you know, I mean, just you saying that right there, I was like, oh yeah, um, for sure this, this would happen for, for other people. Like it doesn't happen for me because I'm a 40 year old white male that 
um, you know, often climbs on Tuesdays and has the crag to myself, or if it is crowded, I always feel comfortable giving everybody high fives and, you know, introducing myself to people and getting in line. But that's just like my experience. And, and of course, my experience is very different than many others, including yourself. Uh, Favia Dubik was on season one and, and talked very candidly about racism at the crag and at the gym and how she oftentimes doesn't feel welcome there. And so it sounds like there's also maybe a way for us to have a little bit of a conversation right now about how people who might be in that camp, who, who whether it's a personality thing or um, a, a discriminatory thing, Obviously, I'm not the best person to be leading this conversation. Let me just hand it back to you because I want us to have uh, a conversation about this. I, I want to see how you would recommend to the clients that you work with or anybody that you just run into at the crag, how they can self-advocate. And then also, of course, for people like myself who don't struggle with that, um, can be great allies and advocates for the people who are struggling with it. I mean, for me, this comes back to this is like the bread and butter of my work is actually like looking at the intersections of social justice, systemic oppression and mental health and mental performance. And mm -hmm. when we look at that, like, you know, that craft boulders is 25 people who's on the wall the most, who's afraid to get into the queue. We're looking at who feels the safest in this space, who believes that mm -hmm. they inherently belong here. Right. And so there's things that we can do in the moment to show someone that they belong. Right. That goes back to that, like humanizing someone's experience. Like it can be simple as just like knowing that we hold power in the space and saying like, oh, you know, as like a white man who's able bodied, who can like who kind of looks like everyone else who's climbing at about this level, like I'm going to feel really comfortable here. And so I can extend that to someone else by just engaging them in conversation, being like making sure that they know that they matter here. They could just be like, hey, what's your name? You know, or like, oh, you know, have you tried this boulder before? Like just getting folks engaged, yeah. letting them know that they that they matter, right? And then beyond that, we have to be doing advocacy work to look at how as a community are we letting people know that they belong or don't belong. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love it. It's a perfect dovetail as well. And I love easy dovetails on a podcast to talk about the work that you're doing, because as you said, that that's where your your space is right now, or that's the kind of the intersections at which you're working. So let's let's take a few minutes to talk about what you're hyped on beyond your personal climbing, or we can talk about your personal climbing because we haven't done a whole lot of that in this episode. But, you know, what are you passionate about? How can we look into the work that you're doing, maybe even work with you? And, and what are you excited about for the coming months or, or the year ahead here? Yeah. Well, Moab desert season is coming up. So super psyched to go work on some, some splitters in the desert. And just that's like Sick. my favorite time of year. Um, but beyond that, you know, I've been doing a lot of work with the Warriors Way to build out our trainer team. Um, so one of the cool things that I get to do is train our trainers all around the world and really empower them to have the skills to work with folks on their mental game. And, you know, I just love working with our team because we have so many trainers that come to this work because like they reach out to us because they just have this passion and they want to share it so badly. 
and I mentor them. I like they work with us for multiple years before um, they finish their process. So it's just such a sweet, rich experience. So I love doing that. And then I also am working on really building out our curriculum beyond our following and commitment curriculum. So that's something that our trainers all teach our following and commitment courses. I really work to build out um, our remote training programs where we do these group mental training courses where folks can go through like a four month curriculum. And we talk about all kinds of things from embodiment to um, dealing with fear and frustration on the wall to identity and relationship building and climbing. So a lot of the topics we were talking about today, yeah. that's been so awesome to build out. And then, um, yeah, I'm starting this new journey as like working as a therapist and just really getting to explore a world of work outside of climbing, but still really working on these themes of embodiment, of body-mind integration and how that leads to post-traumatic growth and resilience. I'm doing some trainings in somatic experiencing therapy, which is something that I've always just really believed is one of the best approaches for trauma treatment. What, what is that? It's body-based trauma work. So it's looking at healing um, rather than just like using the mind to calm down the body's response to trauma. It's looking at teaching someone to take care of their body in a trauma response and how that uh -huh. in turn can help us create an environment to rewire traumatic memories and make them more integrated so that we can move on and, and really feel empowered after experiences of trauma. So is that like in the family of um, EMDR and, and tapping and, and that kind of thing? Yeah, I would say it's a lot more like body focused, um, but it's similar in the like tapping is definitely um, that it would be considered a somatic technique. And so they're all kind of in that body-based psychotherapy approach. Yeah, I, I love, you know, what you had said earlier, where the, that kind of the trauma lives in the body, whether it's a, a falling trauma or obviously, you know, any number of other traumas that humans experience through the course of their lives. It sounds really inspiring, Laura. How, how does it feel to be working in this field? Mm, I love it. It's, you know, it's, I was just talking to a friend over the weekend about how, you know, sometimes people can hear at the outset, like when we're working in kind of the intersections of mental health or social justice or, um, you know, touching hard topics that people can automatically respond like, oh, that's so heavy or that's taxing. And it's like when you're a human that has lived and, and all of us have right like grown up in this like swimming in the water of systemic oppression and when we've been hurt and harmed by it like it is life-giving to look at it directly and say what can I do about this right and how can I be in relationship with other humans who want to be moving in the direction of a world where people don't suffer as much you know, and being able to connect that to climbing, which is something that I love and I think can be a really playful way to approach those things. I mean, it's just such a gift. Like, I just wake up every day and I'm just, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so grateful that I get to just live this life. Like, this is so amazing that I get to make these connections and, and live in this world and, and do this work. So, yeah, I think mostly I just feel really grateful. That's beautiful. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for 
Oh God, just I mean, t- joining the show here, taking the time to review season two and and to bring such a, a, a really helpful and expert perspective here on mental game, but also, you know, thank you for the work that you're doing. You're you're just making the world a better place. I am really psyched for all that we covered today. I'm going to listen to this episode again and again. I freaking love the mental game chapter. And we just went above and beyond and outside of climbing and inside of climbing today. So thank you so much. Um, have so much fun in Moab. And uh, I'm going to try and get out there. I don't know. I was talking to Tom Randall about this too. I, I, I dusted off my crack gloves and my TC Pros. And I'm trying to deaden the nerves in my toes so that I can get out. And uh, if we have a chance to to climb, uh, it would be such a cool thing. So I I hope I hope that that happens. I hope we have uh, an opportunity to cross paths this season. Oh, definitely <laughs> let me know. That'd be so fun. And that wraps up our mind-blowing and heart-expanding chat with Lore Sabrin. What'd you all think of this one? I absolutely loved it. I hope you did too. Let us know. You can find us on Instagram at lore underscore Sabrin and at the Struggle Climbing Show. Now, in a minute, I'm going to share my takeaways, as always, as well as kind of a recap of our season and a what's to come. But first, let's give some love to the brands who made this season of The Struggle possible. Shout out to Fizzy Vantage for being the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle. I was just out actually yesterday climbing with my friend and founder of Fizzy Vantage, Eric Hurst. And at 58 years old, y'all, this guy finished off a 12D at left flank, which means he officially climbed that crag from 5'8 through 13B. If that is not a ringing endorsement of their products, I don't know what is. Learn about the science, the ingredients, and the performance-enhancing benefits of FizzyVantage at FizzyVantage.com. You can look for it in Europe at the Epic TV online shop and in the U.S. at select gyms and, of course, on the website. Hit that link in your show notes or use code STRUGGLE15 at checkout for 15% off. And a big psyched shout out to Petzl. Thank you for being the official gear sponsor of The Struggle. If y'all need a helmet, a harness, draws, anything else to fit out your kit for adventure, you all know where to look. Petzl does it right. They're wonderful supporters of the climbing community. Hit up your local gear shop and pop by Petzl.com to access the inaccessible. And one more shout out here, y'all. The Honold Foundation, thank you guys for keeping The Struggle carbon neutral since the very first episode. How awesome is that? Honnold Foundation believes that no matter who you are, energy should be easy to access, affordable, and have a low impact on the natural world. Let's go. Pop on over to honnoldfoundation.org to learn more about the projects that they're working on, which are so great, and to support the important and impactful work that they're doing. Guys, they're just awesome people doing awesome things. Wow, takeaway time. Um, lore really cracked my head and my heart open in this one, y'all. So it's, it's kind of hard to pinpoint just like a few takeaways, but I'm going to give it a shot here. First, on the practical side, I love their view on how we can set motivating, achievable, and healthy goals, and also how we can then build a toolkit of care and support for when our goals go sideways, which for me seems more often than not. I have personally already started implementing their tip about exploring what I did well as well as what I could improve after a climb, whether I send or not. And I love that aspect of doing it even when you send. Just yesterday, I managed to put down um, what was a really hard 12B for me. And when I marked that tick on my app, I added two short notes in the notes section, what went well and what I could improve. And for me on that climb, even though I felt it went almost perfectly, which it kind of did for me to be able to send it, 
I think that I could have improved on my footwork a little bit and especially finding less neutral positions like by using drop knees or keeping my hips closer to the wall. And so I just put that note in there. What a great little mental habit and exercise to do after we climb, whether it's at the gym or at the crag. I love that. And I also really appreciated Laura's take on fear of falling and the actionable things that we can do to help honor and address those feelings. That is a section worth listening to a couple more times, especially if you feel that your climbing is being limited by that fear, like mine was and sometimes continues to be. Lastly, the um, kind of less tangible takeaways rooted in ego and belonging and self-worth and community, Lore brought such a, a lovely and nuanced perspective, I felt, on what it means to be a climber who is first and foremost a human being. So let's all take care of ourselves and all the humans that we encounter at the crag and beyond. Let's all strive to be stoke vampires and stoke givers, right? Well, that clips the anchors on this episode and this season of The Struggle Climbing Show. Oh my gosh, I cannot thank you guys enough for listening, following, commenting, sharing, and also saying hi to me at the crag. A few times this year, I've been recognized by my voice while hanging out at the Red, which has been a little weird, but also pretty cool. So thank you guys for listening. I've been working really hard on this show, and it does mean the world to me that y'all are gaining some benefit and maybe some joy and some entertainment from it. So look, if you're in a position to spare a few bucks each month uh, by joining as a patron, I would really appreciate that. Swing by patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show to check out what we're offering. We've got these rad perks that are just for patrons, including pro clinics from some of the biggest names in the sport, behind the scenes chats with me and my training coach as we plan training blocks for my goals, cool swag and other great stuff. Check it out if you can. Thank you. I love you. Now, I'm already lining up another slate of blockbuster athletes for season three. Oh my gosh, I'm psyched. And while that comes together, and while I take a little time to get in some spring sends and maybe get in some spring sleep, I will be posting some cool stuff, some like off-season content. So I'll still be in your ears from time to time, and I look forward to that. And if there's anything that you'd like to hear, like a topic, an athlete, whatever, let me know, and I'll see what I can whip together for you. Doing this show has really been so much fun and also a real honor. The Struggle is a proud member of the Plugtone Audio Collective, a diverse group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. This show was produced and hosted by me, Ryan Devlin. The Struggle makes us stronger. See you soon.